Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Andre Bernardi, from Oxobrooks University. Today, I am again with Professor Peter Betke from George Mason University. We will speak about his latest book. This was published by Oxo University Press in 2019. The title is Public Governance and the Classical Liberal Perspective. Peter, welcome back. Please tell us something about yourself and the other two colleagues involved in writing this book with you. Well, thank you very much for having me, Andrea. And um, what? Uh, so I'm Peter Betke. I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University. Um, and my co-authors on the book are Paul Alajica, who's a colleague of mine at George Mason University and at the Mercatus Center, and Vlad Tarko who is a professor at the University of Arizona um, in their uh, new uh, uh, department in moral sciences. It's a kind of a philosophy, politics, and economics program. And Vlad was a a PhD student of mine and Paul's and worked with us on uh, these projects. And he uh, wrote a fantastic biography that I would recommend to all your listeners of Eleanor Ostrom. And uh, that was published uh, about a year or two years ago. And it's an excellent uh, overview of her ideas. So Vlad is a very talented young man and and people should be on the lookout for him. Thank you. Well, I said again, because uh, there is already another podcast with you on a very important book on Frederick Kunayek. And um, can you tell us about the origin of this book instead, how you ended writing it and what's the origin of it? So uh, this is a continuation of work that Paul Alajica and I have been doing uh, on the Ostroms. In, uh, before Eleanor won the Nobel Prize, uh, Paul and I had actually written a book on uh, the Ostroms and the Bloomington School called Challenging Institutional Analysis of Development uh, that was published by Routledge. Um, just a little bit of background on this is that uh, I, early in my career, was interested in institutions and their role in economic development and in promoting uh, social cooperation uh, among diverse and distant individuals. That led me to the study uh, of uh, Eleanor Ostrom and Vincent Ostrom's work. Um, through that, I then uh, met Paul. Paul was a PhD student the last, I think, PhD student of Vincent Ostrom's. And, uh, and so he ended up by, uh, we ended up by joining forces. We were both very influenced by uh, uh, Vincent Ostrom's uh, work on the intellectual crisis of public administration. Um, and so we were interested in, in sort of those kind of uh, puzzles that are associated with what is the appropriate relationship between science and public administration. Okay, now this is a complex book somehow, so please, uh, for the non-expert audience, uh, can you introduce uh, 
the disciplines of public choice and public administration and how they are treated together in this book. Right. So uh, public choice, as we understand it, is the uh, examination of collective decision-making um, that we all must choose in groups and uh, how we go about choosing those groups. So we use uh, tools uh, that have been developed in uh, the social sciences to study decision-making, to analyze those decision-makings within collective choices. A lot of times that's summarized as the economic approach to politics, um, but neither Paul nor I or Vlad are committed to the kind of atomistic homo economicus model in, in uh, public choice, or neither was Lynn or, or Vincent's approach. Um, instead, I like to summarize their approach as they do rational choice as if the choosers are human, and we do institutional analysis as if history matters. I'm, I think a great uh, inroad to this would be actually Lynn's um, uh, APSA, American Political Science Association Presidential Address, because it's a, it's a, it's a mouthful. But you got to listen. It's called a behavioral approach. Uh, actually, yeah, behavioral approach to the rational choice analysis of collective action. Right. So there's a lot of things to unpack there. What's a behavioral approach? What's a rational choice approach? What's collective action? And so the public choice kind of work that we're doing is in that vein, uh, trying to apply a basic actor center model to uh, the area of collective decision making. Public administration is the study of the bureaucratic decision making within collective decision making. And so if you think of these as like a Venn diagram, when you're trying to do the interaction of public choice and um, uh, public administration, it's going to be that analysis of decision making within collective action applied then to particular operations of bureaucratic structures within the broader political system. Okay, now, uh, since uh, this is... Uh a rich book with a large intellectual history presented in. Maybe I would like to ask you if you can, if you could name the key actors that uh, mention this intellectual history, and there are many, from James Buchanan yeah. to Robert Dahl, Ronald Coase, uh, Eleanor Ostrom, uh, even Frederick Hayek himself, uh, not to mention many more, Albert Ishman, Pope, uh, Pigou, and so on. Uh, what are the key actors of this intellectual history according to your perspective to public governance? If we begin with the, uh, reiterate my point about uh, collective action, and we realize that when we're engaged in collective action, we're choosing in groups. The age-old puzzle goes all the way back to Rousseau, which is how can an individual be free while subject to the wills other than their own? And that sets up the entire sort of perspective of trying to think about people who have puzzled through the years with that foundational question of how can individuals still be free while subject to wills other than their own. And there's a long discourse about that, that that takes place about what we mean by a political system that exhibits neither domination nor discrimination, what the role of the rule of law is, generality, the absence of privileges and whatnot. And so the core figures that we work with in the intellectual history behind the book are going to be the individuals that we uh, think, uh, me and my author, uh, co-authors think, have done the most to develop wrestling with that puzzle. And in our <clears throat> reading, 
well, you mentioned there's many names, obviously, uh, you know, that as I'm, I'm going all the way back to Rousseau and you carry that all the way through, uh, you're, you're looking at Adam Smith and, and, and Hume. And then later on in the 19th century, you know, Mill, um, and then in the 20th century, which is what we're focused on, it's going to be Buchanan, the Ostroms, both Eleanor and Vincent, um, and Hayek, uh, mainly are the main people that we're, uh, looking at, but there's of course a whole host of other people who have um, made significant contributions inside of that general framework. Um, so James Q. Wilson, for example, on bureaucracies is is someone who's very very important to all of this stuff. But uh, we're we're trying to develop this argument that's consistent with this overlap between Buchanan, the Ostroms, and Hayek. And what is the practical relevance for policymakers or for the taxpayers of this intellectual debate in economics on public governance? Right. So one of the really important aspects of Buchanan's argument, starting even with his article in 1949, which was the pure theory of, of government uh, uh, expenditures, uh, when Buchanan uh, sort of uh, took that, one of his main points he was trying to get across is you cannot do a theory of public finance without postulating a theory of the state uh, because your theory of the state is going to determine the scale and scope of government activity that you believe is important. Um, as a side note that might be of interest to you, this is why Buchanan was so heavily influenced by the Italian public finance theorists. Um, he was a Fulbright fellow and went and studied all the Italian public finance uh, uh, thinkers. And the reason was, is because in the early neoclassical period, they were the ones who most identified a theory of the state when they were developing their theory of public finance. And so, you know, that was what Buchanan was trying to get at. And so I think if you think about that, a theory of collective action is necessarily going to have to have a theory of public finance Theory of public finance is going to have to postulate what the proper role and scope, scale, scope and scale of government is going to be. And we can also flip that around, which is that you can't do public finance unless you postulate a political philosophy. You can't do political philosophy unless you postulate a mechanism of public finance. And so this is where a lot of the uh, intellectual debates come in is on not only the scale and scope of government, but then how you're actually going to pay for those services that are rendered um, by the government once they're done. So, you know, that leads to issues of the production and distribution of public goods and all of those kind of questions, you know. I forgot to say that there are nine chapters and then the conclusions. And if I can move to chapter seven, the title of the chapter is Metropolitan Governance, Polycentric Solutions for Complex Problems. So here we move to solutions for the local level. Has by any chance the state versus market dichotomy contributed to underestimate the role of these municipal level institutions? So if if I go back to just my last answer and we go to the issue of public finance and we think about the scale and scope of government, when we start the key issues in doing the public economics of who determines who should be responsible and how are we going to pay for it at the different levels. We have to think in terms of your locality, 
right? Your, you know, state or your federal government. And the idea was, is under the principle of subsidiarity, uh, what you wanted to do was you wanted to match the size of the externality with the decision unit that was responsible for dealing with that uh, externality or that public good. So you don't need the federal government to collect your garbage. At the same time, you can't expect your local government to be in charge of your international defense policy kind of idea. That's sort of the contrast, right? Now the question is, once we determine, um, you know, where the different responsibilities lay, the question then is, is how do you then finance it? And in economics, that idea was the benefit principle, that basically what you should try to do is mimic what a market would do in environments where a market doesn't exist. Right. So, uh, you know, in the in the easiest way to do this, you just would have user fees. So, you know, like an example of that could be like a toll road, whereas, you know, you're only going to pay for the good if you use it and you pay the toll. Um, But not not every situation is easily fenced in as that kind of environment. And so we have to figure this out. How do we juggle the benefit principle with the subsidiarity position? And then upon examination, this is where the Ostroms come in. Their big idea was a notion of polycentric governance that you have these functioning, overlapping, competing jurisdictions, that that changes the way in which you would judge the delivery of different public services. And so where people might see inefficiencies because they see duplications and redundancies in various different delivery of public goods, that actually might turn out to be a very efficient way to respond to the local needs of the citizenry. And so this is why you want to have these functioning, overlapping, competing jurisdictions that will be competing with each other for a tax base, but yet, you know, also delivering the local public goods. And when we think in terms of just this strict dichotomy, state, market, we end up by missing out how there's these different institutional forms of governance that make possible social cooperation. And so we don't want to just see it in terms of this strict dichotomy but instead see it in terms of the various forms of governance which allow us to cooperate with one another. Okay, on page 159, to remain to this local level, there is an example, and it is about the failure of a community policing, and this is raised by Eleanor Holstrom. Um, when I read it, I, I thought about a figure that I recently found on the newspapers because of the struggle with, with police forces in the United States. And I discovered that apparently there are 17, almost 18,000 police forces in the United States. And this, this didn't sound like very effective or efficient as a choice. And so from the perspective of your book, can you name sectors where the current institutional architecture in the United States needs uh, some kind of urgent revision? Yeah, so I do think police is a very important question. Um, and what we're currently uh, witnessing in the United States is a very um, uh, sort of a poignant moment for us to have this conversation. Um, in a democratic society, uh, the citizens should never be viewed as enemy combatants. and the those in charge of protecting and serving us should never be armed as military commandos 
in their own society. And unfortunately, in our society, that is how things are at the moment. And so something seriously wrong is going on. Uh, the Ostroms in the 1960s started studying, uh, they, they began their work by studying uh, the delivery of water services in uh, Los Angeles, um, uh, which is a particularly difficult collective action problem, as you might imagine. Um, but then they started studying the municipalities in general. And one of the things, of course, that they studied was the delivery of police services. There was in the 1960s and the 1970s, this notion of what was called UNIGOV, the idea that we should consolidate uh, public services under a single banner, and therefore we would have more efficiency, we'd have more professionalization. What, uh, what Eleanor Ostrom found, and I have an article on this called Riding in Cars with Boys with my colleagues, Jamie Lemke and, and Leah Palagashvili, and uh, uh, what Lynn found was that as you consolidated the police services, the policemen themselves lost touch with the communities that they were servicing. And so we ended up by no longer seen like citizens when it comes to public safety, but seen like a state. And that has continued to be the problem that has perpetuated in the delivery of this uh, particular problem. Now, in the because of the failure of that, we did have a movement to get back to community policing which is part of why you see this expansion of the number of, of uh, uh, you know, police forces that you're talking about there. But the issue was that now, rather than having them funded by the local communities, they also receive uh, a lot of funding from the federal government. And so I have another paper on that, which is what I call the, the theory of fiscal attraction, which is that if you could imagine a magnet, okay, and if the magnet is pointed to where the financing comes from. That's going to be the attractor. Well, imagine, so originally you would like to have a magnet that would have its attraction to the citizenry that it's protecting and serving. But if what happens because of the war on drugs, the war on terror, we flip that and we turn it so the magnet is at the federal level, we only have community policing in name, not in actual fact. And I think that's what you're picking up in this kind of unusual situation that you see in the United States. That includes, by the way, the arming of local police with military surplus equipment, which historically was never allowed in the United States. But because of the war on drugs and the war on terror, it has been allowed. Um, and so this is where you get like the, the kind of scenes that you see, which seem very at odds with a democratic self-governing society. But police aren't the only services. I would say education, health, and the social safety net itself are all examples of where we've seen a shift away from seeing like citizens to seeing like a state, and with that coming the dysfunctions that we see. Um, I mentioned earlier Vincent Ostrom's book, The Intellectual Crisis of Public Administration. I would That came out in 1971. Um, Jürgen Habermas, the great German social theorist, also published a book in 1973 called The Legitimation Crisis. And I think that both of those books are identifying something that happened in the 1960s and early 70s, say, for example, with the Vietnam War and other kinds of frustrations and whatnot of that period. And I think we're seeing something similar to that going on in our society right now 
in that we're facing a legitimation crisis that the current um, you know situation has been a stress test on, and that's it. and so we have a very very important lessons to be learned. Thank you very much. Let's move to uh, now chapter eight. Uh, the title is Independent Regulatory Agencies and uh, Reform, an Exercise of Institutional imagine, Imagination. Um, here there is another interesting uh, practical example. And if I can quote it, uh, for example, the 2010 BP oil spill in the Gulf of, Gulf of Mexico, also known as the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, was made significantly more likely by captured state regulation. And uh, this is the fact that a cap on liabilities was in place. Those two problems, regulatory capture and bureaucratic unaccountability, often led to weak regulations, distorted regulations, or both. So in the chapter, you also mentioned hybrid solutions. And you try to persuade us that in some cases, industry self-regulations can be more reliable than state regulation. So I should say that it's not about um, regulation or no regulation. It's about where the regulationary uh, pressure comes from, right? <clears throat> so let me tell you, start with a, a story. It, it's, it's, um, I was at a conference many years ago with Ann Kruger. It was at the LSE. And, uh, and, and she made a comment. Uh, I gave a talk and then she made a comment afterwards. And she said, no offense to my George Mason University friends, um, but we've all learned about the power of, uh, you know, markets and how fundamentally important markets are um, in, in our society. But what we need now is reasonable regulation that's not capturable by interests. Right. So note that term, reasonable regulation, not capturable by interest. Well, to me, see, that's not just a, a conceptual issue. That's an empirical issue. We need to examine, right, reasonable regulations. So that means a regulation that would meet under ideal conditions, some kind of cost benefit, uh, conceptual cost benefit calculation. But the second clause is not capturable by interest, meaning that regulation is not going to be vulnerable to interest group manipulations within the political process. And that becomes, a, as you can see, that the, the subset narrows then, right, from what would be the subset of reasonable regulations to those reasonable regulations that are not capturable by interest are going to be a smaller set, right? And so to me, that's actually what we're trying to get at. And so one of those regulations is going to be the regulation that's provided by polycentric mechanisms. That is competition, competition for, from those overlapping competing jurisdictions or competition from markets themselves, right? That, you know, who's going to do that, what to protect the consumer. And so in, in what we're trying to do in that, in that section of the book um, is go through the issues of the problems that independent regulatory agencies, which keep in mind, remember that those, there's a phrase that matters there, independent regulatory agencies. These are regulatory agencies that are set up that are to be immune from the normal pressures of democratic uh, influence. Um, and so what happens is they're divorced from political pressures. They're also immune from market pressures. And so then, you know, how are they going to organize? Do they have the knowledge to be able to, you know, set the right 
uh, price or quantity restrictions in that particular industry to achieve the goals that they want to achieve. That's where the sort of Hayekian knowledge problem come in. When they can't meet the knowledge problem, where do they get their information from? Well, then that's going to turn in another direction. So what are the pressures that are going to bear on it? So a very important set of papers in the 90s was written by the economist, political scientist, Barry Weingast, and what he called the issue of market-preserving federalism. And one of the key components of his notion of market-preserving federalism is that the regulatory uh, component is at the most local level. And that means that then people can compete against different regulatory regimes. And rather than this leading to a race to a bottom, it leads to a more reasonable level of regulation is wine gas thesis. And then he gives examples to demonstrate this. And that's kind of, you know, what we're trying to simulate as well. That's the polycentric system operating. It's not no regulation. It's not no state. It's, you know, what level of governance is utilized to be able to do this. And what we're trying to avoid is not um, federalism, but but cartel federalism. We want to make sure we have competitive federalism, not cartel federalism. Cartel federalism is like going back to my fiscal uh, attraction point. It moves the magnet away from the local citizenry to the federal level because that's where the resources are going to be attracted from. And that leads you to other kinds of things. Let me give one last example just to your listeners because I know this is a hard thing to, 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 to see because we, we imagine a world where we're not going to have uh, regulatory capture. So I think a really great example, and, and everyone should look it up, is uh, and you can find it on National Public Radio and other places, is Carmen Segaria, the case of Carmen Segaria, which is on the Fed and the Fed's regulatory uh, capacity overlooking investment banks um, after the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Carmen Segari was a very uh, young lawyer. She was very excited and dedicated to the public service. And so she went to go work in the regulatory capacity at the Fed to make sure that something like the financial crisis could never happen again. So the Fed was charged with overseeing, looking at different financial deals that the investment banks were going to engage in, like, for example, Goldman Sachs. And what she found out was that the Fed wasn't regulating Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs was controlling how the Fed was doing the regulating. They had captured it. And so she actually became a whistleblower and she went in with her iPhone and taped the messages. And there's like five hours of tape that you can listen to on NPR uh, of her sort of laying out this idea. Now, there's a, a kind of an interesting dilemma in all of that, because on the one hand, uh, the Fed needed to get information from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs had the information that that the Fed needed to regulate. And so therefore they need to have them cooperate with them. And so how am I going to get them to cooperate with them? Well, I'm going to look a little, I'm going to look away at times when maybe by the letter of the law, I could be cracking down on them. And so this creates a real issue. And I'll just, again, to your readers, so that they don't think it's just about, you know, uh, you know, Buchanan and Hayek and others. Uh, you know, if you look at, at uh, 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 Tarol's, Jean, Jean Tarol's uh, Nobel lecture, he talks about this issue. He's talking about market failure and he's talking about rec regulation. 
to be able to address the market failure. And he, in fact, is recognizing this issue that there's this weird asymmetry because the regulator needs the knowledge from the industry and the industry is the best source of the information. And so how am I going to get that information while at the same time not letting the, you know, the, the, the industry end up by controlling or subverting the regulation? It's a very difficult puzzle. It's another constitutional you know, issue of, uh, which goes all the way back to our original question, which is how can an individual still be free while subject to wills other than their own? And we throw them into these collective decision-making processes. And then that requires all kinds of constraints have to be involved in the way we interact with each other in that sector. Okay. But let me test uh, your approach, your perspective (laughs) on, on the different uh, case. So recently uh, we are all dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, What would you say in terms of uh, public governance infrastructures in the United States, in terms of capacity to handle the emergency. But even more generally, this is the second question. Now, uh, we have all rediscovered how crucial is uh, the role of the state. And yes, we all love firms. Uh, they provide us the vaccines. Uh, nobody will be able to develop them, probably. They built for us the ventilators and the protective equipment. Uh, and we are now even considering... Uh, bringing back home the protection of some of this stuff that is uh, too far away when we get an emergency. Uh, but more than the firms, probably the state coordination was crucial yeah. during the emergency. And we also saw that uh, a more laissez-faire approach in Britain and in Sweden at the end proved wrong. And also in Italy, we discovered that some of the delays in Lombardy uh, were caused by the employers' associations, uh, and also the trade unions, in fact, asking for um, well, they were trying to resist the lockdown measures, in particular in Bergamo, which is one of the most industrialized provinces in Europe, and they didn't want to close the factories. So from your perspective, what's the role of the state in dealing with the crisis such as this one? Well, I mean, look, I mean, this history, is the jury's out on all of this because we're doing science in real time, and that's always a difficult endeavor. And we're going to learn a lot over the next 20 years, 30 years, 40 years when we look back and study all of this. Um, I think that, um, you know, we have had um, uh, and by the way, it's not over. Right. So we might be tired of the virus, but the virus isn't tired of us yet. Right. And so we, we don't know what the what the, the product's going to be over the next, uh, you know, uh, 12 months or so. Um, if history is any judge, you know, usually these things die out at a certain time, uh, just by the evolution of the virus, it becomes less, uh, uh, you know, um, aggressive and whatnot. Um, but, uh, it doesn't disappear. It just doesn't have the damaging effects that it has on the, on the hosts. Um, but, uh, you know, we're all going to find that out. Now, the question is, is I think, um, the model lean exercise from the beginning, so this is a methodological issue. So I'm responding to a concrete question with a methodological and abstract. I'm not trying to evade the question. I'm going to come back to your question. But let me first sort of the modeling problem in epidemiology. And I think it's important for people to remember that epidemiology is a social science. Microvirology is a natural science. This is different. Uh, epidemiology is a social science, which means it's dealing with human populations. 
whenever you're dealing with human actors, human populations, there's two things that are important to always take into account. One of them is the behavior choices of the population that you, in fact, are studying. And that as that population adopts the theories for their own actions that you as the modeler predict, they'll act in a way which violates the predictions of your model, right? Because they're, they're, it's not that they're it, just by following your advice, they're going to undermine, you know, what your model is doing. This is an old modeling problem that, you know, obviously Oscar Morgenstern talked about, but also Bob Lucas. This is the essence of the Lucas critique. So the first thing is, is that the models in modeling problem in economics or in any social science has a problem that one, you have to take into account human behavior. And two, you have to take into account heterogeneities of the population. So this, this particular virus does not hit all human beings the same. So it's, it hits, there's more vulnerable populations and less vulnerable populations. And the impact of that virus is different on those different areas. So what that should suggest is maybe if we followed a purely evidence-based policy, which is very hard to do in the public policy realm. But if we followed a more evidence-based policy, you would have more heterogeneity in the experiments that would have taken place. Now, in any kind of crisis, you're not going to have the calm, cool, and collected idea to do that. So you instead move towards more command and control approaches, more centralized approaches. And that's where we've seen the what you're talking about, the importance of the issues having to do with arguments for state capacity and and all of these kind of ideas. So I guess in the end, my biggest concern is that we've in fact had a one-size-fits-all approach uh, as opposed to a more heterogeneous uh, approach that would affect different locations differently. Um, I understand the reasons for that. There are real emergencies and when real emergencies happen, you have to move away from various different uh, kind of uh, normal practices. But what I'm worried about is the long run consequences of deviating from those normal practices. And therefore, then when the non-emergency times get back, do we get back to a level of where we can have decision making at the collective that that, that still uh, purports to value the freedom of individuals within that system. And, you know, we're going to, we have a lot of experiments that are, that are uh, going to look at. I don't think China is an example for a democratic society. I don't think all the models in Europe are, are applicable to the model in the United States. I mean, we have 325 million people in the United States in a landmass that covers, you know, three different time zones. So a lot of the states are the size of countries in Europe. And so, you know, the variation in the population here and the impact and the way the virus spread is different in different parts of the United States, not because the virus is any different, but simply because of the population that was in that. Are they older are they, you know, more, uh, more uh, uh, vulnerable? Is the is a dense dense area, or is it wide open spaces? You know, all these kind of things matter, and the models, especially this Imperial College model, uh, you know, was was predicting on the worst case scenario, and that became very much the model that everyone adopted.
very interesting that you forecast uh, the impact of what we are learning now for the past, the next 20, 30 years. Uh, it is such. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's amazing. I mean, if you think about the public finances, all right, on all of this and what has happened to budgets, what's going on with the economies, how do the economies. So to me, the economic issue is that uh, in normal times, if we were talking about a normal financial crisis in Europe or in the United States, the way that you would see the recession would be the correction because it would be a reallocation of capital and labor. But right now, we because of the lockdown, what you've done is you've actually put the economy in a state of suspended animation. And it's just, you know, it, it's capital and labor can't get reallocated the way that it normally would. Um, and so as a result, you're not seeing the adaptations and adjustments. And so when the economy kind of comes back, and, and, and let me just say one other thing about the economy coming back, it's a fascinating puzzle. This is not in the book, but this is a Robert Clower, this is a Clower crisis more than it is a Minsky moment, if, 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 if your listeners understand those terms. So Clower postulated that there's a coordination problem because of expectations about our interactions. And so this is a really serious problem right now is that um, people want to go back, want to open up their restaurants to get their business going back, but they can't open up their restaurants unless they have the customers, right? And the customers aren't going to come back to the restaurants unless they know that they're safe to go to the restaurants. And so there's this coordination problem in which you're going to need some kind of very important signaling mechanism to overcome so that individuals can, in fact, go back to some normalcy in their life. And uh, so I, I, I think this is going to be a very, I mean, I feel extremely, um, you know, I mean, I'm very, very affected by, you know, the, the loss of, of businesses and the loss of career aspirations of people and all of these things like that. And so I, I'm not trying to be uh, light about any of this. I mean, it's a, it's a very dire situation, but I think as a social scientist, it's also fascinating to step back and see how it is that this coordination problem is going to be solved and what are the necessary entrepreneurial acts, either by public actors or private actors that are going to be required to be able to get the system, uh, you know, back moving again. Definitely. And there will be plenty of books on this. In fact, uh, there are already there was already one book published by, I think, Oxford University Press on, on the economic consequences of the crisis. So, yes, we'll be writing a lot on this. Well, one of, the th one of the things I've been doing, Andrea, is I don't know if you've been following this as well, but at Princeton, they have these webinars on the economic consequences of, of uh, the coronavirus. And they started early on. One of the best early talks I ever heard was by the Nobel Prize winner, Angus Deaton, uh, which was relating the COVID-19 crisis with his book with Ann Cates on, on uh, you know, the, the despair, right? Uh, the Deaths and Despair book. And, um, and so that was early on, but Asimoglu's been on it, Stiglitz, uh, you know, Krugman. I mean, I got to see seminars 
uh, and participate in webinars I never would have <laughs> normally participated in, you know, because uh, they were going on on this. And I, I'm, a, you know, this week, Raj Chetty is going to be talking tomorrow and I'm going <laughs> to dial in and watch him give this presentation. And I've been taking notes. It's like I went back to graduate school with all of this. And, I, and so I'm very fascinated by these kind of social science questions. And, uh, but, you know, Asimoglu has a very good paper dealing with these problems with the, the SRI model having to do with human modeling and the heterogeneity of the population and uh, human behavior in the heterogeneity. And I think that, you know, we're going to, we're going to learn a lot uh, about, uh, you know, uh, this particular episode, especially because it was so globally spread. As opposed to, you know, so like when the collapse of communism happened, it was, you know, locally focused. This is across the entire globe. And so we're seeing the impact of it. And there's puzzles, right? Major puzzles, which is that when you would have back in February, you would have said, who's going to get hurt the worst? You would say, oh, well, the low income countries are going to get, you know, hurt the worst. Well, you know, that, you know, hasn't seemed to be the case yet, right? Uh, at least not. I mean, India seems like it's it's maybe going to have real, you know, some real challenges or whatnot, but we haven't seen the same kind of level of of breakouts and, and, and whatnot yet in like Africa, right? And so, um, and yet you would have predicted that at some level that it would have been, uh, you know, done, but yeah. Okay, let's move to the end of the book, which, by the way, yeah. is um, 270 pages long. Uh, and in the conclusions, uh, you make uh, an important reference to the Oxford Handbook of Governance and also the Oxford Handbook of Public Management. And the conclusion, more or less, is uh, uh, that governance and public management should be considered a vindication of the classical liberal perspective. Can you tell us why? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's important to understand that classical liberalism is not a no state position. You know, uh, you know, the main representatives in the 20th century, um, you know, Mises, uh, Buchanan, Hayek, you know, Friedman, all of them were advocates of a, a state government, uh, a government you know, that, that, uh, was a functioning government. It's a question of the appropriate levels of and limits on government and it's, a, a, and the effectiveness and responsiveness to the citizenry. And so what you want to have is a, uh, a social science, uh, this is an Ostrom line and a social science that, is up to the task of a democratic self-governing society. Um, that's where the art and science of association all comes in, in, in dealing with these puzzles. And so what we really want to do is we want to, again, see like a citizen, not have it seen like a state. And if I can uh, just point out uh, a passage from Eleanor Ostrom's book, on governing the commons, which I think is is uh, summarizes our position up, is at the very end of her book, Governing the Commons, which is a very detailed and focused book on dealing with common pool resource problems. She gets at the very end of it and sort of is asking a question, what's it all about, right? And page 214, this is in her book, Governing the Commons. It's under the section called A Challenge to Scholarship in the Social Sciences. 
And what she's arguing is that the current social sciences uh, fall into an intellectual trap uh, in relying on models to provide foundations for policy analysis is that scholars then presume that they are omniscient observers able to comprehend the essentials of how complex dynamic systems work by creating stylized descriptions of some aspects of those systems. With the false confidence of presumed omniscience, scholars feel comfortable in addressing proposals to government that are conceived in their models with omnipotent powers to rectify the imperfections in all fields of inquiry. So she's raising a challenge to that. That's not no state. It's what is the effective aspects of the state? How can those states be responsive? And so she quotes the the philosopher economist Robert Sugden in where he says, most modern economic theory describes a world prescribed over, right? It's described over by a government, not significantly governing with, right? So government's not to be governing with its citizenry, but to govern over. And they see the world through the government's eyes. We're trying to switch the perspective in our book and make you see from the citizens seen like a citizen. So go back to the police. What we care about is the responsiveness of those who protect and serve to the citizenries that they're supposed to protect and serve, not to meet some objective bureaucratic criteria of what it means to be an effective police service the number of arrests per month, the number of you know traffic tickets they give out or whatever. It's actually public safety as understood by the citizens within the community. And so there's various different ways that you think about that in the organizing of your public sector that would be consistent with a scene like a citizen perspective. And that would be invoke then the handbook of, you know, uh, public, uh, uh, you know, uh, governance and public management, that would be what we would hope to be effective public management of governance would be governance that satisfies the desires and uh, wants of the citizenry under over which they are providing these services. And that way we get governing with. So it's a a democratic society in that sense. Thank you very much, Peter. We spoke with Dr. Peter Betke, who is a professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University, about his latest book. He wrote it with his colleagues, Paul Drago Saligica and Vlad Tarko. We spoke about public governance and the classical liberal perspective. This was published by Oxford University Press in 2019 in the Political Economy Foundation series. Thank you very much for your time, Peter. Thank you very much. <laughs>